0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. On the line with me today is Part of the crew is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. How are you doing there?
1: I'm doing okay. The sun's out and the garden's looking good. Doing a bit of veggie gardening, so all is well.
0: Uh, are you getting any tomatoes this year? I know uh, the last couple of years you've had a bit of a bad run.
1: I am getting tomatoes, and they're actually lazy tomatoes. They're all self-sown, and they're doing really well, so I'm very happy.
0: Very good. Yeah, mine have gone nuts, although I'm a bit disturbed by the height. They're about seven and a half foot at the moment, which is a bit imposing, a bit Trifford-like, <laughs> <laughs> and about three feet taller than my largest steak. Uh,
2: good morning, Dr. Jane. Good morning, Dr. Shane. That means just that if you were me, you would need a ladder to be able to pick your tomatoes, which I'm not sure I've heard that very often. You know, I'll I'll grab my ladder so I can get my tomato crop.
0: Yeah, you like just sort of shake it and hope for the best and hope they'll come down?
2: No, because then they'll go splat. That would be
0: terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, you do You got to be quick. You got to catch them. But uh, yeah, no, we're, getting a, we're getting a good crop this year. It's weird though, isn't it? The different weather conditions and how they play out in terms of what fruits, yeah. what doesn't, how quick the birds get. We, we get a lot of bats that fly over our house, so I got to, I got to get them yeah. quick because I fear once one of them works out that there's some juiciness down in my garden, it's all over. So we've been <laughs> we've been lucky so far, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Now we've got a big show ahead. Ewan's going to do some uh, very important environmental stuff later in the hour. We're also going to be speaking with Dr. Vanessa Perotta, who I actually got to speak to yesterday. couldn't talk to her live today, unfortunately, because she's actually on a plane right now traveling to Antarctica. Right now, at this point in time, it's
2: a, it's a tough life.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, it's, um, you know, I, I sent her a whole, whole lot of, you know, abusive, uh, envious uh, comments saying, you know, <laughs> wish it was me. But, um, but, you know, she's doing some good science communication work there. So we're going to be talking with her a little bit later in the show about whales and all things um, marine,
2: which is going to be fun. Um, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr.
0: Jen, do you want to start us off? You bet.
2: I would love to, Dr. Shane. So I think we've all heard a lot about spider webs over the years, right? We've all heard that um, spiderweb silk is incredibly strong, stronger by weight than steel, and it's certainly, you know, I can think about how beautiful and how intricate spiderweb designs are. But this week, I came across a study that I reckon is pretty fascinating. So, think about the basics: what is a spider's web for? It's to catch prey. Mm. So, you know, think about your spider sitting in its web, there's a fly or mosquito or whatever it is that's flying into the spider's web. The spider senses the vibrations across the web silk as the fly lands on the web and it knows it's caught a meal. Excellent. But researchers in the US wanted to test whether the web can actually transmit the tiniest, tiniest of vibrations, the vibrations made by moving air, So the moving air molecules that are created by sounds. So what happened was they worked with a species of spider called a bridge spider. They had them set up in their frames, they'd made their webs, and then they played sounds with a frequency of about 200 hertz, which is similar to a buzzing insect from loudspeakers, which were three metres away. So I reckon Mm. that's a fair distance away if you're a little spider. So this was to simulate a flying insect approaching the web, but from a distance. Now, spiders don't have ears in the conventional sense, but 90% of these spiders immediately responded to that sound that was three metres away. They crouched, they lay down, they lifted up their forelegs, a sign that they detected this vibration and they knew that it was to do with food. And just under half of the spiders they tested not only detected the sound but knew which direction it was coming from. So they went on to test uh, sounds of all different frequencies from 100 to 10,000 hertz, and they found evidence that the silk could transmit that full range of frequencies, and they did test to make sure the spiders weren't detecting these sounds using any other part of their body. So what that means is that this silk is essentially the most sensitive animal eardrum, in inverted commas, eardrum, ever known, and it allows this tiny little spider to stay small but to effectively have outsourced its hearing to this really large web, um, which I think is pretty incredible evolution. Yeah, it's extraordinary they, stuff, isn't it?
1: Did they talk about, I guess, the, I mean, there's two functions for the hearing, right, because obviously they want to detect their prey, but they probably also want to detect predators of them. So, you know, Absolutely. If, if, if a bird or something is, or even a predatory insect like a wasp that might actually grab them, you know, and parasitize them. Do they, yep. do, they, do they talk about that and the fact that they need to hear both things and, and how that might work?
2: Well, absolutely, and what the researchers speculate is that if the silk is that sensitive across a whole range of different sound frequencies, then maybe they're designing different parts of their webs to filter out particular sounds or focus in on particular sounds. So maybe they're filtering out background sound like wind, but they're focusing part of the web on detecting predators and part of the web on detecting prey, which, I mean, if that's true, that's speculation. But if that were true, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Every time we learn something new about the natural actual world, you just think, wow. We got no idea what's going on out there.
0: Yeah, that's cool stuff. I mean, one of the things that immediately you, know, you hear the physics brain in me just switching on with this story. But yeah, you know, we've always sort of spider webs, and there's the, their design be around structure and strength and so forth. But is it optimized around the ability to transmit these sounds and, and actually yeah. you know, transmit those vibrations at, at a sort of at the best possible optimum, sort of um, precision in terms of location? Where all of it, you know, because you could you can yeah. design all sorts of antennas. Um, um, and some of them will work better than others, and, and it may be that that's actually what's predominantly happening with spiders—not just stuff around strength. Which would be, if we found that out, that would be really cool. It also, yeah, explains- and that's the thing
2: that that means this web is essentially like an external antenna. You can think yeah. of the, you know, a spider having this huge antenna out there in the world, which is um-
1: cool. I'm still waiting for my Spider-Man suit, though. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hurry up, people. Hurry up.
0: <laughs> I'm going to stop trying to sneak up on uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously, that's not going to yeah. work for me. I just, you know, and uh, no. to, yeah, everyone else out there listening who is like me is a bit of arachnophobic. You know, sorry about Jenny's story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, the, the guys online probably knows. I'm just sort of looking around the room. I, I tend to do that whenever people start talking about this, just to make sure there's nothing hanging down around me, um, and which may cause me to vacate the studio very rapidly. But um, yeah, now guys, I wanted to tell you about uh, something that's happened over the last couple of weeks, which is really amazing. You know, back on the on Christmas Day for us, essentially. Uh, we launched the Webb Telescope finally, you know, after years and years and years of us talking about it, finally this amazing telescope that will replace Hubble, uh, replace and then some actually, the Hubble Telescope, telescope um, was launched and it's now, you know, what, uh, 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. It's a long way away, much further away than the moon in one of the Lagrange points, which is this sort of, I guess, a, a gravitational stability point um, further out from the moon than than uh, we would normally be. and. What's happened over the last week is they've started testing the main mirrors and the alignment of those mirrors, which there are 18 mirrors that make up this telescope. They're all sort of you know, blocked together into a group. They've started testing the cameras. And what, um, what they sent back was, was two things. One was all these little pinpricks of starlight. So they looked at this one star, and what you see in the image is basically 18 little misaligned dots. So they're just, and you're looking go. Oh, that's a bit boring. But what it means is all, <laughs> all 18 of them are sending back information to the camera. They're so working. they're a little misaligned. Yeah. But this is part of the process of of aligning them as seeing something and then aligning it, which is cool. But what they also managed to do is take a a, a bit of a selfie of the array of 18 um, as well. So there's now a picture of that, which is really cool, which you can find online. But but this is great because it means we're moving into that phase of alignment now of the the 18 mirrors. And once that's all complete, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the point where you know, in a few months will be seeing the first images back from, from the Webb Telescope, which is, which is going to be phenomenal. It'll be amazing stuff that they'll be able to do with that. So, yeah, exciting. And
2: Shane was... Shane, having all 18 mirrors working, is that absolutely best case scenario? You know, was a whole lot of redundancy built into the system? Does this mean there'll be extra power that we didn't imagine we might have with all of them working?
0: I think um, it's fair to say there isn't redundancy in terms of the mirrors themselves. I mean, less mirrors mm-hmm. means less light. So the thing yeah. is designed to work with all mirrors intact attached and working, but what, what has happened with um, the deployment of all the various aspects because it was all folded up, you know, it was kind of folded up like a piece of paper and it had to all unload is that mm-hmm. we have seen optimum conditions for that. So every single thing that was supposed to happen has happened and everything has worked. So, you know, so far it's tick, tick, tick for for web and and this is just the next stage in that. So there are there's so many things that need, need to have happened to get this where it needs to go and get it all working. And so far that's all been successful. So, you know, huge feat in engineering um and you know in yeah. incredibly hostile conditions. I mean I just still think of we're standing up all these pieces of glass. They're super precision engineered in this giant rocket that vibrates like crap and we hope it all works <laughs> out. You know what I mean? even just saying that, you think, wow, well done. <laughs> so, there we go. Uh, Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us?
1: Yeah, look, I guess a, a sad story in a sense, and a fairly confronting one, that I'm sure many people have seen in the news this week that, you know, our iconic marsupial recognised the world over, of course the koala, has now been listed as endangered. So, it's, it's one step closer to extinction. So, uh, you know, this is in Queensland, the nor- uh, New South Wales and the ACT, so it's not the entire distribution of koalas, which are also, of course, found in Victoria and South Australia as well. But it is a- a pretty big chunk of that distribution. Mm-hmm. And so, um- you know, in 2012, the former minister for the environment, Tony Burke, listed the koala as vulnerable. And in the 10 years since, we've just seen the continuing demise of koalas. And of course, I'm sure many listeners would have seen the images of koalas, you know, uh, being affected by the devastating fires in 2019-20. But by far and away, the biggest impact on koalas, of course, is land clearing and loss of their habitat, you know, free destruction for urbanisation and also for agriculture as well, and in fact, establishment of coal mines as well. So. You know, it's estimated that in those 10 years, um, the federal governments, plural, um, have approved over 25,000 hectares of clearing of koala habitat, which equates to, for those who like MCG measurements... <laughs> About twelve and a half half thousand MCGs Mm. of koala habitat have been cleared in that 10-year period. So it's, uh, you know, it's obviously tragic for koalas, but I think it's more emblematic of where we're heading as a country. You know, you think about all the other species, of course, that we have that are at risk of extinction. So I think it, it is very confronting to see something as truly iconic, of course, as the koala that's that's facing this, you know, very real prospect now of at least across, you know, a decent proportion of its distribution heading towards extinction pretty rapidly. So, look, it's confronting news, and of course, that's just another, I guess, reason why we need to do better.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, one of the things. I mean, you must you must go absolutely crazy about this. You and all the time, but I, <laughs> I do.
1: I, I, I know you do. Um,
0: but, but the, the thing <laughs> I find interesting about this is. If we can't take action for our most iconic species, and you see this, whether it's tigers or polar bears or, in yeah. this case, now koalas, then what hope do some of the less known, less iconic, not in kids' um, sort of books on animals that we all grew up with? What what hope have, have they got? Because we're yeah. you know we're, we're not acting on the ones that are. You know, as as I always said years ago, you know there were sort of five dinosaurs that everyone saw. The new yeah. And and you know if 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 you heard that one you know when we when we heard that maybe the brontosaurus wasn't a real separate dinosaur it was a smaller pterosaur people freaked out you know because it was going to have to write a lot of books again and you know we're going through this phase now where we, we talk about some of these really iconic species and we're like well that one's lost that one's lost that one's lost and we're 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 starting to get a big list and you know the idea that the koala you know be, be for Australia like the kangaroo disappearing off our natural yeah or, or, or like
1: the Great Barrier Reef as well yeah yeah. If you can't take care of these things, like you say, you know, how are we going to take care of all the wonderful plants and insects and fungi and so forth that we have as well.
0: So Yeah. And you know, there's yeah. some there's some always some good news stories, you know, like the is it the Lord House stick insect which we you know Absolutely. managed to save and that's an amazing one. You know, pygmy possums are, you know, doing doing okay. You know, the the Tasmanian almost a tiger devil, um, you know, <laughs> Tasmanian tiger apparently is roaming around somewhere. Um, Tasmanian devil, you know, d- doing well in those ARC populations and so forth. So, you know, we can do it. We can do some of this stuff. But, you know, I mean, they're limited, very limited examples that have taken extraordinary effort. And unfortunately, those those examples are in spite of everything else that's going on. So, you know, and and the people doing those particular um, pieces of work can't do that for a thousand species. They can do it for a, a few. And that's, you know, we yep. kind of get stuck. So. Well,
2: we could we could do it for more if we had more money because the examples oh, yeah. you've just listed had a heap of money thrown at them because yep. of particular, you know, particular charismatic examples. If, if we had a government that cared enough to give money to a few more species, <laughs> we could certainly look after a few more of them.
0: Yeah. The Koala is not overly charismatic, is it?
2: <laughs> well, people Just like him, mate. I love
0: him. Look, I think I think they're great. I think they're the they're the ultimate, you know, F you in terms of um, you know, I'm gonna do my shit. You can walk on by, I'm not gonna engage with you at all. Uh, leave me alone. I'm real hard to find. I, I've come across Australians recently who, you know, at age 47 or something, have just seen their first koala in the wild. <laughs> like, yeah, because they don't they don't want to be spotted. They're really good at just you know hiding. They don't move a lot. They don't move a lot. They're hard to see and uh, they do their thing. So uh, yeah, look, it's 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 not good news at all. But um, maybe, and I say this a uh, big big M, uh, maybe this will spur some some action. Um, let's, but, hope so. you know, let's hope so. Let's hope so. And you know that that might be the way to go. 3RR. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3 R. With me now on the line is Dr. Vanessa Perotta. She is a wildlife scientist, a science communicator, one of the superstars of STEM for 2021-22. And you've probably seen her. She does a lot of work with whales. Vanessa, welcome to the show.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on. I think I remember a couple of years back now thinking I've got to get Vanessa on to talk about the work but you were getting heaps of media. I tend to leave people alone when that's happening because I know how overwhelming that can be and wait until we've got time to settle and really spend some time talking about the work in more detail. But before we get into your work with whales in particular, give us a bit of a, a background on how how you ended up becoming essentially a marine biologist. I mean, why did you why did you choose this field?
3: Well, it just the short answer is I don't exactly know how, but the experiences that I had as a child were probably shaping the way and where I got to today. So uh, I always start off the story by saying I did grow up on a farm, so outside of Canberra, so any Canberrans listening, you know, it is a lovely part of the world. I had a my dad and mum, we had a, an acreage of 40 acres and that was fantastic. You know, we had deer. I had a pet cow. There was everything you could think of on a farm, yet there was no ocean. Um, so it was, it was an opportunity for me to somehow find this, navigate my way to loving marine mammals like whales and dolphins but being in the middle of a farm. So it was kind of a bizarre upbringing. The other thing is there was a movie, Free Willy, at the time, which is showing my age, but there's a boy who works close with a a dolphin, essentially killer whales are a large dolphin. There's the first fact for the show. And it was that opportunity for me to go, wow, these animals are really cool. And then as you can imagine watching documentaries, I then grew up a little bit more and then I worked at a zoo. Had all these wonderful opportunities to then refine the direction that I wanted to go to, which was this, it was originally dolphin training. Mm. So uh, many people, some people don't know, some people know that, some people don't, but I ended up working with dolphins and sea lions and rehabilitating turtles, which was an amazing and uh, amazing experience and, and one which I will never forget. But then I, I wanted a bit more in my career, and I, that's where I went into doing my master's and my PhD.
0: I, I love the fact that your influence was the film Free Willy and you're worried about what that tells about your age. I think back in and, and my influences at that time were Jaws and the film <laughs> Orca, which both portrayed all of these amazing creatures as, you know, spectacularly scary things that we should try and kill and hunt down and do our very best to avoid. So, yeah. you know, I think you came around just at the right yep. time. I, I ended up in physics, maybe because of these films, you know, and it was um not as sexy back then.
3: Well, so the thing is now much of my work is trying to flip the idea of how people see sharks and particularly because they're, thanks to Jaws, people have this terrible idea about them and we need to think about the important ecological roles that they play.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. One of the things I'm proud of with my boys is that growing up, they knew how to name a certain number of sharks and a certain number of dinosaurs uh-huh. in equal measure, um, uh-huh. which was always very important. So now in terms of your, your work, though, has moved into the field of whales in particular. Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, before you got onto what you, you've done, which is quite spectacular, we'll get to in a moment, how do you normally or how do researchers normally go about learning about whales, um, given, you know, given there's are such enormous creatures, they're all over the world, how do we get information?
3: Well, there's a variety of ways in which we can get information. And I must point out, it depends on the question that you're asking. So before any science happens, we always like to have questions and make sure that what we're doing, especially if it involves being near a whale, is with purpose. And so there's animal ethics committees and I could go on, but that's being a boring scientist. <laughs> so um, I guess there's many ways. One of the coolest ways is putting tags on whales. So Um, we can think of a tag the size of your mobile phone that you might be listening to us on today or holding in your hand right now as you listen. And that can be placed on the back of an animal, not an actual phone, but something, it's a tag. Uh, We can look at and that can tell us movements of a whale from satellites. The other way could be collecting whale snot, which we use drones to do so, or we would use, in the past, people would use poles to, to hold over a whale's nose as they breathe. Bear in mind that their nose is at the top of the head like an inbuilt snorkel. That's pretty cool. And there can be other ways such as collecting whale poo. People might biopsy a whale by shooting a dart at at it and collect a bit of skin sample. There's a whole host of ways and I could do a whole lecture on it, but they're just some examples that Mm. people use to learn more about whales.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, And you mentioned there the drone scenario. So this is where you really sort of, I suppose, got into something that just ended up being quite phenomenal. But... Tell us about what you do there, because essentially, in, in you know, shorthand, uh, you fly a drone through a whale snot and you collect some. So how exactly do you go about doing that? Because that, it's obviously a lot more difficult than it sounds.
3: That's right. I must point out, it's a collaborative effort. So the work that I do could not have been done without the great teamwork of my team. And that's what's so cool about science. is about meeting new people, collaborating and doing great things. And in this case... Flying an average drone that you might have got for Christmas just does not cut it for the type of research we're doing. So my flying skills are just not able to to, to match what is needed for this project. So I collaborated with a good friend, Alastair Smith from HeliGuy Scientific, and together we built this purpose-built drone for flying over a whale. So it's it's, it's a racing-style drone. So essentially, it's got four propellers. It's super fast. It has no none of those safety features in terms of making sure that you know where it took off from. It, it's going to tell you if it's got a low battery. It will do that, thankfully. But um, it's it's designed to fly fast and collect our samples. So it's a drone on, on top of the drone. It's waterproof, whale snot-proof. It has a mechanism to place a Petri dish on top. And the idea is that we want to fly the drone deliberately through the Petri dish, as uh, through the whale blow with the petri dish open as the whale takes a breath. And this is work that we've been instrumental in doing because this is allowing us to collect bacterial information from whale lungs, mm. which I'm sure your listeners would be very much, um, how do I put, relaxed now almost with getting a sample taken from their body in terms of their nasal swab or maybe their mouth swab. In this way, we, we can collect this information from whales without them even knowing that we're there, which yep. is pretty
0: cool. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. I I've been on a few scenarios where, you know, whale watching and so forth, and it's not, you know, it's not something you can just schedule. Mm. Um, you know, we often know where they are, there's sightings and so forth, but you're taking that to a whole new level because not only do you have to find the whales, mm-hmm. presumably you have to fly this drone through at exactly the right moment. Is there any way to sort of determine when that's going to happen when a whale breathes out like that?
3: You have just encapsulated the troubles that we have at times (laughs) and that's really good because people think I used to work, well, I still do when it's not COVID, um, work on a whale watching boat and when people would ask, okay, so how do you track, where do you find the whales? And literally you just go out and you look. Mm. There is, it does take a bit of a knack. So I will be watching for whales and determining their behaviour as much as I can. So once I see a whale in the distance, it is my job to continue looking to where the whales are and keeping an eye on the drone as well as the pilot Once we have a whale come up for a breath of air, so you'll hear the noise, that's the whale exhaling and then taking a a breath. So the um, as the whales will do that, if they're in a pod, the good thing is there's multiple whales, so they'll usually be one up, one up, Mm then one takes a breath, the other one takes a breath. Once we see the pod and we know that they're going to be up for maybe a couple of breath cycles, we'll fly the drone out and then the drone can then... Be in a position where we can see the whales through the drone to almost, I can't see the whales anymore. The drone can see them swimming underwater. And if they remain subsurface, then the drone can be right in position. And as the whales come up, you can sometimes see it from the surface. The whales blow bubbles just as they're about to come up. So it's almost like a, and then breath and then take a breath of fresh air. So yeah, you can visually, you can visually see them about to take a breath.
0: Wow, it's amazing. And are the whales aware, because these drones generally are fairly high-pitched in terms of frequency, that will hit the water, it will down-convert a bit to a lower frequency noise. Are the whales aware of the drones being nearby?
3: Well, first of all, there's been research on the, the acoustics produced by drones, which has shown that it's not, not likely to impact certain whales, which is a good thing. That's very generally speaking. Yep. Um, the other component is through our research we have found whales either knew the drone was there, and showed no behavioural response or the whales had absolutely no idea that the drone was there because we saw no behavioural response in the work that we've done so far off Sydney, which is good news. And we're talking about a drone, maybe the length of your child's school ruler. Yep. So they're not that big. It's quite small and it has the uh, we have the ability to fly it from the back of the boat from our platform, over 200 metres plus away from our boat, which is awesome. Mm. So this is good. This is a really great, exciting time for research because We've got technology; it keeps evolving. And since we first started this work, well, it just it just keeps on evolving, which is exciting.
0: Yeah. So you grab this snot sample. What sort of things can you get out of that? Because as as you mentioned, we can pick up viruses and bacterial infections in in humans, not and in other animals and so forth. Um, but what do you see from whales? Because I, I always think of you know what birds, whales, humans, sharks all travel all around the world all yeah. the time and are exposed to a variety of different environments i mean do you see the sort of record of that in the whale snot
3: look to some extent again it depends on the question i'm asking so for the work that we were doing we're specifically looking at collecting bacterial dna so there could be a whole host of other things and at the start also we wanted to work out is this are we able to collect whale snot we're just collecting water are we just collecting air samples We had to make sure that we had controls in place to work out what we were collecting. And in the case for whales, we were simply describing the types of bacteria they had in their lungs. And, you know, we found some overlap between humans and whales. We're mammals, they're mammals, which is a good thing as well. So we're likely to see similarities. But what we were also able to do was to compare the information from certain other whale populations from around the world. And then we can use this sort of as a library for understanding what types of information is coming from a whale in terms of, okay, this is from a relatively healthy whale. If we have a whale that strands, how can we compare this information with the bacteria identified in this whale that is not in good health? So... In some cases, there is the potential to collect viruses from whales, and we have, in this case, a world first collecting viruses from these whales. In fact, there's one example of a virus we collected, which was associated with the McMurdo Ice Shelf in Antarctica, mm. which is very cool. So it's essentially collecting the world's smallest organisms from one of the biggest. And it's all about how we go about asking questions and the tools that we have in place to do so.
0: Yeah. Now you normally you're on the back of the boat. You're flying these these drones. You, you're sunning it up. You're having fun. But at some stage you've got to go back into the lab with all this snot and actually yes. examine it. I mean, what what does that look like? How do you how do you go about determining what's in that material and how much of that material do you actually have?
3: Well, you would think that you'd get a lot of whale snot, which is a whale can take a breath up to five meters high, and you can visually see that. Mm. But ironically we don't get much and so we can try and increase our sample size by making or having more effort and also by having bigger dishes but it all comes with a compromise with weight and drone battery time and ability to fly the the next stage once you collect the samples and you keep them cool is you take it into a laboratory you extract the dna by using a dna extraction method and then you do a pcr which again your listeners would be very much familiar with which is the gold standard of identifying, or at least reproducing, making more sample. So you're you're taking a small sample and you're, you're reproducing. You're making more of it. So there's a lot of science behind it. I won't go into it, but essentially you're taking a small sample and you're making more of it. So you can take sort of a a blood drop in a CSI crime scene and you can make more of that. And then what we do is we do DNA sequencing where we put the samples into a really big-looking multi-million dollar machine to then tell us what types of bacterial DNA at a taxonomic level are there. So there's a number of steps, but the ultimate overarching thing in this is to work out, yes, do we have a method that we can collect biological samples from whales in this way? Yes, we do. And B, are we able to really collect bacteria and viruses? And then what else can we learn from that? So yeah, it's a it's a good starting point. And as technology continues, we will we are refining our drones as we speak, which is good. And also the questions that we ask will likely increase as well.
0: Yeah. And what, what does this tell you about the health of the individual whales that you're looking at, Vanessa? Because I figure that's a, a pretty big question for us at the moment. I mean, we see all sorts yeah. of issues with whales around the world, some beaching, some of them just dying in the ocean, various things. Um, do, do you get health information from from the whale stunt as well?
3: Well, you do. So the idea of the, the bacteria that we're getting is a small snapshot on representation of the animal's health. It won't provide everything. Ultimately, the blood test is a gold standard of health information, but we can't exactly ask an animal 17 metres long, 40,000 kilograms in weight, kilogram in weight, to present its fluke to us for a sample. So we can't do that. So... It's just one component piece of the puzzle that we can do to access these access these animals in environments such as the ocean where it's not always sunny and calm waters. So it does require a huge number of things to come together to make it happen.
0: When you when you look at uh, a pod of whales, and when you look at a group of whales, mm-hmm. how much consistency is there between the various members of that group? When you're looking at things like viruses and bacteria and so forth, are they all kind of is it like us at the moment when we're all at the supermarket, and we all get <laughs> the same version of COVID, or or are they are they all quite quite different? Is there is there some sort of clarity coming out as to how how these pods come together, what that means, you know, how they're connected? That well, that's stuff?
3: a that's a really big question. That's an awesome question because I don't actually know. Because when we sample a whale, we aren't able to sample them all in a pod because it requires again timing and identifying which whale is which. And by the time we've sampled as much as we can, we haven't able we're not able to always get every single individual. But again, seeing some sort of similarities and overlapping bacterias would also be somewhat representative of a small portion of the entire population, and also. Whales don't always hang out with the same friend. They like to mix. And when we see them coming up the east coast of Australia, they might be hanging out with Jessica one day and then they might be hanging out with Hazel or Thomas the next day. So we just don't know. There's there's a huge, they're big animals making a really big migration. The tools and play to understand the social nature of individual whales in a population of over 40,000 humpback whales is a big question, but a question that in the near future we would like to ask.
0: Yeah, it's a good one. In, just, just on the sort of populations and so forth, there, there are a number of very extreme threats against our wild populations mm. at the moment. And one we talk about a lot, which is, you know, the changing climate, the change in their habitat, the change in their food supply, and our contamination of the ocean physically. But what about our sort of audio contamination of the ocean? Mm. How, how bad is that at the moment? Because I think we we don't talk about that nearly enough, as far as I can tell.
3: No, that's right. And take someone like you to ask that great question because obviously acoustics is your everyday. We're listening here to us right now. Whales do use sound to communicate, not all of them. The low-frequency communicators like the baleen whales, the toothless whales, the blue, the humpback whale, and sound produced by humans, non-natural sounds, are unfortunately in our environment and making the ocean really, really loud. And so that reduces the available space for whales to talk to each other. There is awareness and recognition to this from many different parties like the International Maritime Organization, which has guidelines in place to help reduce ship noise and build quieter ships. That's a real big positive. But unfortunately, we do create a lot of noise in the environment. And we've written a paper about this in terms of ship impacts. Ships produce sound, which is the loudest near the source, near the engine. And there are those flow on effects beyond kilometers beyond the ship, which means that there's this acoustic noise in the ocean happening just about everywhere. And COVID provided an awesome opportunity to listen to what the sound of the ocean was like normally. And then once COVID stopped, uh, started, we had a dramatic reduction in shipping movement. Mm. So then that was an opportunity to collect sound, ocean sound data, background noise. And then now it starts up again. Yeah. There's also a really great paper about North Atlantic right whales where after 9-11, so there was research doing, the researchers working on these right whales and sound before 9-11 happened. And then they had an opportunity to hear the sound and measure cortisol levels and other levels from these animals post 9-11 and showed, that was able to show that ship noise does cause stress in these animals. So there's really, we need to be aware of sound in our oceans.
0: Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, Vanessa, you're one of the superstars of STEM for 21, 22. I'm hoping that's two full years, not a financial year. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does that involve for you? Like, what, what do you need to do to do that sort of promotion work? What, what do you get up to?
3: Well, first of all, I'm part of a great cohort of amazing women all around Australia, which is really good. And so the best thing about this program is meeting other scientists, doing amazing things. But the idea behind Superstars of STEM is to elevate women in science and to promote them on a platform to promote their research and to also be seen. So the idea of having a visibility of many different women from different backgrounds, cultural diversity, and that's something that's really important because, again, when I grew up, I never saw anyone, any females on TV doing what I do. And also the other thing that we don't often see these days is I come from a European background, so you don't wouldn't necessarily see an Italian Maltese person who's a scientist as well, talking on TV. That's the kind of thing that I'm hopefully trying to do with my work by being this European descendant from a European background on in an Australian environment, which when I was growing up, I used to get teased about my background. And I was, I would actually hide the fact that I was so European, you know, we'd have tomato salsa day from looking for other brandy. That's what we did. And I would be embarrassed at that at times. Now I'm so proud of who I am and my background. And so there's an opportunity as part of this platform to not only talk about your science, share knowledge with the world, meet wonderful people, but also show that diversity in science. And Superstars of STEM is a great platform. It also provides you with the opportunity to learn about how to talk about your science, but also it provides you with mentoring. So I mentor a lot of students and the professionals, but I now have the opportunity to be mentored and that's so wonderful.
0: Yeah, look, it sounds like a great program. And I, I've known many amazing uh, women from the program over recent years. We interview a lot of them obviously on the program and, you know, it's it's hard to, to fault just how, how brilliant um, they all are and, and, and how great they are at communicating their science as well. Now, um, Today, you're off on a, a, a big new adventure. Uh, I guess you've been there before, so I'm not sure if this is still exciting. But you, you're no, heading, it is. You're it heading is. back to Antarctica. What, what's um, <laughs> what's going on down there?
3: Oh, what isn't going on down in Antarctica? Antarctica is so important to all of us. It is the bottom of the earth, yet it plays fundamental roles in regulating our environment, our climate. It acts as a massive carbon sink. We We, we have tiny creatures down there only a couple of centimetres long Antarctic krill, which help regulate our ocean. Right now we're on our way to Antarctica and we're down there to check out the the continent to have a look at it. There are a whole number of people on board right now that have never seen Antarctica before. So I'm here in collaboration. I'm representing very proudly the the Antarctic Science Foundation as well as collaboratively with Antarctic Flights, as well as Qantas. So we're on one of my favourite aeroplanes, the 787 Dreamliner, and we're making our way down to Antarctica so that there is a whole group of people that will have the opportunity, opportunity to see and explore the ice for the very first time. Now, I must point out, because we're doing it in just a day, we are doing figure eights over certain areas and we are not likely to land so it's, it's an opportunity for all these people who've never seen the ice before to see it, experience it, experience it and to learn about it. And my role as a science communicator is to connect everyone, but also to tell them that below us is probably a whole heap of whales, which are in Antarctica right now feeding. And in just a few weeks, we'll be getting ready to prepare for their migration north to Australian waters to then give birth and have their young.
0: Yeah, it's it's fantastic to think about that, that whales as a species are able to deal with such massive changes in climate. I mean, you know, as humans, you you, you move around by more than five degrees, you hear people complaining. But, you know, whales go from those incredibly hostile waters down in Antarctica yes. up to you know where we all want to be off the northern coast of, uh, of Australia. I mean, what is it particular about whales that give them that capability to make such massive changes?
3: Well, the good thing is blubber. So fat is a good thing. It's like them wearing a nice insulated jacket. And as they migrate they to Australian waters, they don't actually have to eat, but some will opportunistically feed. So the idea of them being in Antarctica right now is to feed and to put on a lot of weight. It's a really good thing in the whale world to eat, eat and eat and put on a lot of that fat storage so then you're equipped and you've got energy to go up north. And that's really cool. And, and there's something exciting coming out in April, which I can't speak about just yet, but I will have an opportunity to share this, especially with younger audiences, where they'll be able to see something and learn more about this.
0: Well, Vanessa, look, it's been absolutely fabulous having you on the show. Sorry it took us so long to, to get there. Um, have a great time looking at Antarctica and telling everyone about all the amazing things down there. And I'm sure um, having having actually been there before yourself, you'll have a very different perspective to, to many. Thanks for being part of Einstein the Go-Go today, and we hope to catch up with you again in the future.
3: Thank you so much, and keep learning. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple FM in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Go Go on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. I've got on the line Ewan and Jenny. Ewan's going to tell us some important stuff. What's happening, buddy?
1: Look, I'm feeling uh, rather pleased with myself because I think this story seg- segues. <laughs> I think this story segues beautifully from the uh, segment you just had with Vanessa Perotta and also what we talked about earlier with Wales. And I didn't plan it that way, so. It's just panned out that way. So um, I guess what I want to talk about is, I guess, tackling, you know, I would argue the two biggest crises that the world faces right now, and that is the climate change crisis and the extinction crisis. Mm -hmm. And they are both obviously incredibly severe um, and they both affect each other. So, of course, you know, losing species we know can impact environments, which can compound climate change. Climate change can drive species to extinction and so on and so forth. And so we have these two, you know, big crises happening. And the question is, of course, well, you know, how bad are things? But also, more importantly, obviously, as we're saying again earlier in the show, you know, what can we do about it, right? What's what's a positive thing we can do? And so just for a bit of context for listeners who don't know, you know, we are, we, we think, and it's sort of, I think, generally accepted in the ecological conservation community but that we are in what we call now the Earth's sixth mass extinction event. Uh, and part of the also the reason why many people also refer to us as being a the right? So where you can see the impact of humans is, is basically unquestionable. You can see it all around the world, however you want to measure it. And in terms of extinction rates, of course, we traditionally look at um, the fossil record. And for a large number of species or taxonomic groups, around about one, one million years, you might expect the loss of one species, right? So, it's it, you know, extinction is a normal thing. But, of course, we're seeing extinction rates that are much, much, much higher than that. So just as one example, in Australia, since European colonisation roughly 230 years ago, 39 mammal species now extinct, okay? So orders of magnitude higher than what you would predict from the fossil record. So in most cases, we're seeing, you know, rates that are 10, 100, or in some cases, thousands of times higher than what would be considered to be normal. But the question, of course, is what do we do about it? We know, obviously, you know, last year we had um, leaders from around the world that met in Glasgow, Um, to tackle the climate change crisis and in fact this year we're having leaders that are also meeting for an equally important decision which is about the what they call the post 2020 global biodiversity framework and that's basically setting out the IUCN's kind of plan for how we're going to conserve species how we're going to have a sustainable planet and what their goals are and one of their goals is to halt biodiversity loss by 2030 now you can already see that's really really ambitious 2030 and achieve recovery by 2050. Right, so that's going to hmm. be a, uh, um, exactly. Hmm.
0: <laughs> so I'm just that's, trying to work out what year it is now, and, and I'm always a bit confused. You know, since the whole we pandemic got eight thing, years left. we've got eight years. <laughs> I've forgotten what year it is, um, but something tells me that's not far away.
1: Yeah, it's it's really really close, and I think it's probably unrealistic to say that they are going to halt all biodiversity loss. The question is, what can we reduce, and you know, mm. what things can we start recovering? We can ho- hopefully slow things down, but a little bit like climate change, we're not just going to grind it to a halt straight away. It is going to take some time, but of course, the earlier we act, and the more we act, the better things would be. You
0: and do we and have so, a do we have a feel at this point when we're looking at some of the biodiversity loss right now? Do we have a yeah. feel as to what the delay is like? Is the loss now due to something we did 15 years ago, or are we seeing the loss now because of conditions right now?
1: It really depends on the species and the ecosystems you're talking about. So, you know, because some species, of course, are really short-lived. So if you're a mayfly, as an adult, you might live for a day. If you're a large eucalypt tree, you might live for hundreds of years. And we often refer to in ecology this idea of extinction debt. So if you drive up the Hume Highway from Melbourne and you look out across all those paddocks, you will see these beautiful big old gum trees, but they're all by themselves. Mm. And you'll notice that there's no baby gum trees underneath. So there's no recruitment coming in that population. So when those big gum trees eventually fall over and die at some point, there's going to be no replacement of those trees. So that's what we call extinction debt. So in some cases, yes, the sort of things that we've done in the past are still having an an impact on some species. In other cases, it's more immediate effect.
0: It's fascinating Uh, because I remember years ago reading some report about the minimum sort of hectareage you needed for a forest area to be sustainable, and I can't remember the numbers in my head, but whenever I've flown over places and looked out windows and seen, you know, that carve up that you see of of, of forests, and I've thought, I wonder if in that carve up that was considered, like, is that one I'm looking at right now below that minimum, and no matter what you do in 30 years, it's gone.
1: Yeah, and again, it's really going to depend on the species. So, you know, if you're a, you know, a large mammal or some sort of, you know, animal that needs a really large area and you've only got this tiny little forest block left, mm. you're not going to survive. Yep. Whereas if you're a really, really small species that only needs a small area, maybe you can persist. So, again, it really depends on the species you're talking about. But there's a really interesting study that came out recently in the journal Ecography um, by Carly Vin or Vine. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her surname, so apologies. But they asked a really, really simple question. In a sense, is that okay if we want to try and restore environments? And this is often also this concept of rewilding that probably people have heard about, about bringing species back to recreate the things that they do in the environment, which helps to obviously you know increase the resilience and and, um, you know make them more buffered, if you like, against things like climate change. If we are to bring back species and particularly large mammals, which ones would it be? And so mm-hmm. what they did was they took the IUCN red list data, so basically species that have been categorised at conservation risk mm-hmm. and where we know about their distributions and their population size and so forth. And so 298 large mammals. And they looked across the world and asked a really simple question, if you could, you know, bring back one to three of these large missing mammals, you know, which ones would it be? Right? So pretty simple question but a really important one because... We know, and I'm sure probably Vanessa was talking about this, that some of these large mammals have incredibly important effects you know, on the ecosystem. So, mm. of course, one example is whales, right? You know, whales are these giant poop or iron pumps, right? They go down, they dive deep in the ocean. This is baleen whales. They're not whales with teeth, but whale with baleen plates that are feeding on plankton and zooplankton so tiny microscopic plants and, and um, you know, algae and, and, and um, small fish and so forth, they dive down deep, they eat lots of them, they bring them to the surface, they poop, and that essentially fertilises the oceans. And it's been worked out, of course, that when we had larger whale populations, this effect was massive across the ocean. So the oceans were far more productive in the past than they currently are because of the impact of the whaling. So that's just one example of you know, a large mammal mm. being important. So they looked around the world and then they've reduced this list to 20 of you know the most important mammals from the perspective of, okay, if you want a short win and a rapid win, and they argue that they, you could bring these animals back within the space of about five to 10 years, which ones would it be? And it turns out there's seven predators and about 13 herbivores. So, the seven predators, some of which I'm sure people will recognize, but some probably don't. One is the dole, which is this sort of dog looking animal that lives across Asia, sort of similar in size to a dingo, but a little, little bit different, obviously. The brown bear, the jaguar, the cougar or the mountain lion, the tiger, the wolverine, and the American black bear. So, they're your predators that you would bring back. And in terms of the herbivores, we have American and European bisons, wild horses. Um, multiple species of deer, hippopotamus, um, elk and moose, um, and a really interesting uh, species called the Pacorana. Again, I probably mispronounced that. It lives in South America (laughs) and it's this rodent-looking animal that is nocturnal, um, imagine something sort of looks not dissimilar to a beaver but without the beaver-like tail um, and it roams around in the forest eating fruits and so forth. And the beaver was another species to bring back. And, again, people probably, some people might know that beavers actually, again, have this really important role and they're often referred to as what's called ecosystem engineers. So they um, literally cut down trees, they gnaw them down, mm. they they make these dams with all those that wood that they've created and that changes the hydrology of the whole ecosystem so rather than having really fast-flowing streams and so forth, you have these big still ponds, which creates habitat for a whole bunch of other species. So it's, it's a really fascinating story, I think, big, or sorry, a piece of science, because you know it really says, okay, well, if we have to prioritize, you know, which ones we want to bring back, where would you start first? And so, you know, it, it does, I think, in one sense, give hope because it's like, well, okay, we, we know we face these really massive challenges with conservation of species, but here's a set of large mammals. And again, I think, you know, as you mentioned before, when we're having a discussion about koalas, Shane, we don't want to just focus on large mammals because things like mm. small insects, as an example, pollinators, they're all important. We know fungi is important in terms of the health of our vegetation communities and so forth. But if we just look at the mammals as an example, here's a suite of species that we think we can actually have some really big wins with. It, it,
0: it's amazing. I mean, the complexity of these decisions, and we've only got a few minutes left, but I can imagine you, and when you look at something like like the the, the brown bear or something that's you know yep. one of these apex predators, you have to consider the entire ecosystem below them and yep. make sure that if you bring them back, that system is there to support them, and presumably part of that system would have collapsed as a result of their absence. So how do they factor that in? That must be incredibly complicated.
1: Absolutely. And and they mentioned this in the research that, you know, in in some cases for these large mammals, you would need to bring back their prey species Mm. at the same time. Mm. Now, in the case case of brown bears, you know, uh, and black bears as well, they're really unusual large carnivores because they're mostly vegetarians, right? right? So they're mostly eating a large amount of berries and they occasionally will dine on salmon or, you know, small deer and things like that. But So they're a really interesting large carnivore. But you're absolutely right that animals that have these really large areas that they need, we often refer to them in conservation as umbrella species. So if you can conserve the area that they need, that will provide protection for a whole bunch of other species that co-occur in that area. But when you're talking about allowing them movement, of something like a brown bear or a mountain lion, which, again, need huge areas to move around, Mm. you are talking about, well, how do we allow them to move through the landscape, including going off, you know, um, national parks and so forth through areas that might be agricultural land, minimising impact, of course, on livestock and minimising, therefore, conflict with humans. Also, we think about things like road traffic. And um, there's a lot of research around the world about creating highways that have overpasses or underpasses to allow long distance migrations of things like brown bears or reindeer or whatever it might be, so yeah, there's really a large set sort of challenges that come along with allowing these animals to come back in the landscape. But if we can do that, the benefits are huge. And of course, there's the environmental benefits, but there's also the cultural benefits. Obviously, most of these species, in fact, all of them, are going to be important to local communities, including First Nations people, Indigenous people, and there's the economic benefits as well. So you know, we know, of course, tourism. And in the case of mountain lions, it's been shown that if you have healthy mountain lion populations, you have far fewer car accidents because they keep the deer mm. population down lower. Yep. So there's all these incredible side benefits that come from bringing these animals back as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, not to mention the fact that it just takes a very, very long time to evolve a particular species of, of that size and level of complexity and so forth and, and they really are the apex of, of many many uh, millennia of, of evolution across the planet so seeing them disappear is just you know a, a tragic scenario given it's our fault um, <laughs> doctor, Did I say that? Yes I did, of course it's our so fault, um, but it's also within our power to, to fix a lot of it, so it just Absolutely. requires the will. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Dr. Jen, great to see you again, we'll see you again in a few weeks time
2: Great to see you, Doctor Shane.
0: And Doctor Ewan, thanks so much. And thanks for that story. Beautifully told. And and I think it's it's amazing to think that we could actually select some of those out and bring those animals back. Um great stuff, buddy. Thanks.
1: Absolutely,
0: pleasure, folks. Uh, a big thank you also today to Dr. Vanessa Parada, who is uh, somewhere flying over Antarctica, I think, right now. So it was great of her to give up time yesterday with me to talk about um, to talk about whales and all things in the ocean. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go Go, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.